0: this year, 2019, is the 150th anniversary of the birth of Robert Paul. Um, Robert who, you might say? (laughs) Many people do. But um, I'm hoping that by the time I've finished, you will have a sense uh, of who Robert Paul uh, was and why I think he both was and is very important and certainly should be much better known. trying to celebrate the 150th anniversary of his birth because I don't see anybody else around who is doing that. No banknotes, no coins, no statues, uh, which one might have hoped for. So uh, this lecture tonight and an exhibition which follows in a few weeks' time and a series of events, books, publications, represent an attempt to register Robert Paul on the English national consciousness. Um, So, my theme tonight is really Paul as a Londoner. Uh, He was very much a Londoner and I think this idea of Paul showing London to the world has got some resonance and some importance. Uh, Here is a film that he made in 1896. We only have it because it was encapsulated within a little flipbook called a phyloscope. So you're not seeing the film as people would have seen it in 1896, but you're seeing that sense of being on the street in London, one of the most exciting cities in the world. And you have to imagine this film being seen, not just in London, but being seen all over the world, as Paul's films were. It's very short, but it's a fragment, we're lucky to have it, of the 800 or so films that Paul produced across his career, we only have about 80, so the attrition rate is quite high. Now, this question of his reputation, I think Paul really should be seen in the context of the other Victorian greats that we're familiar with. uh, Faraday, whom he venerated and in fact he contributed to a a, a big exhibition about Faraday in 1931 at the Albert Hall. Um, Clark Maxwell, Brunel, Stevenson, I think Paul really ought to be seen as somewhere in that galaxy of major figures of the Victorian era who started something which is still with us today. The reason that I say that is because in October 1898, Paul published an ad in the showman's newspaper, The Era, in which he outlined what I think is nothing less than a vision of what cinema could be, was about to become, but was not yet. So it's really very much on the basis of this realisation that seized him in October 1898 that I say he is really the founder of cinema in Britain and to some extent in the world. Now, he didn't come from nowhere, of course. Um, if we look back, we can see a line of innovation, experimentation. It goes all the way back to um, Philip de Lutherberg, the Eidophusicon, 1781, Louis Le Prince in Leeds, Wordsworth Donisthorpe, who photographed the front of the National Gallery very successfully, uh, William Fries Greene, about whom we know much more now and realise actually did more than uh, was believed for a long time, and of course Paul's short-lived partnership with uh, Bert Akers, which produced the first moving pictures. But the interesting thing is that Paul knew nothing about these precursors up to Bert Akers, whom he worked with for three intensive months in 1895. So this was a history which was yet to be written. We can look back. Paul, if he owed anything to others, uh, owed particularly to William Dixon, W.K.L. Dixon, who created the kinetoscope for Thomas Edison. That was what got Paul into pictures. So I think if we put him in the context of the other cinema pioneers, uh, Thomas Edison. Here's a a younger photograph of Edison than we're used to seeing. This is Edison as he appeared at this time in the 1890s. And this is um, uh, Louis Lumiere, again, a younger photograph than we're used to. This is a contemporary gallery of what these young men, as they all were, looked like at the moment when cinema was created. And really, I think Paul belongs with Edison and Louis Lumiere. And uh, that's where I'd like you to leave you with the conviction of by the end of this evening. Now, what I want to do is um, focus on Paul as a Londoner, someone whose natural subject matter was London because that's where he had grown up. And in many ways, of course, London was the most exciting city in the world at this time. There's a, a famous book by Jonathan Schneer called um, The... the, the, the um, 1900, the imperial metropolis. And um, it was an imperial metropolis and Paul was born in Islington in 1869, right there. Um, I only discovered this relatively recently because one of our great early cinema historians um, had mistranscribed the address. (laughs) And I thought I'd better check and went back to the birth certificate and discovered that Paul was indeed born in what was then Albion Road just off Holloway Road Uh, It's changed its name, it's called Furlong Road now. Um, The house is not standing, but if you look across the road from where he was born, that house, I think, is pretty much in the style of the house in which he was born in 1869. Paul was the first born to um, his parents. He'd be followed by four other children, uh, two, two boys and two girls. But interestingly, none of this family of five had the same kind of educational advantages as Robert had. And um, those educational advantages were very unusual, very significant, and certainly shaped his early career. First of all, he was sent as a pupil to the City of London School, what's now called the City of London Boys' School. And curiously, Perhaps not curiously, this rather ancient establishment had just got a brand new building. And that's the new building which had just opened on the um, embankment. Paul was one of the first pupils to attend that very grand new building of the City of London School. He moved on from there to the very first version of the City and Guild's Technical College. The City and Guild's um, structure realized that Britain was falling behind in technical education. There was a a massive realization in the 1880s that Britain was going nowhere in terms of educating its future technologists and scientists. City and Guilds got together with other forces and created a college which would train the technological elite. The first premises were not in um, Leonard Street but that's the building which opened in the 1890s and it's in that building that Robert Paul demonstrated his first projector uh, in in February um, 1896. But we do have a photograph of the interior of the kind of lab that he would have trained in. He belongs to an elite, the first generation of young pupils, young students who were trained in the new electrical science, trained by some very important figures. William Ayrton, whose instruments Paul would go on to manufacture when he set up in business. Now, Paul was running a scientific instrument business from 1891 in Hatton Garden, a small uh, office workshop. We don't really know how big it was, when fate intervened. Now, we have no pictorial uh, record of this, of course, but uh, I've been working with uh, an artist, uh, Ilya, uh, for some months now on a graphic novel version. So you're seeing, really for the first time, some pages, some panels from the graphic novel that we're producing. And here, Ilya has imagined the fateful encounter uh, in 1894 when two Greek-American uh, gentlemen walked into Paul's shop and said, uh, I won't do a funny accent, um, which would be quite inappropriate. <laughs> we have no idea if they, uh, what, how they spoke. They said to him, we'd like um, like you to manufacture some kinetoscopes. Impossible, he said. It will have been patented by Mr. Edison. Oh, no, it hasn't, they said. And when Paul checked at the patent office, he discovered that Edison had not extended his patent beyond the United States. He was free to manufacture replica kinetoscopes, and he did, a lot. He then ran into difficulty. Edison would not supply him with the film strips that the kinetoscopes required. He kept the samples that Paul sent him, but he wouldn't play ball and set up a cooperative scheme. Paul was forced to devise a camera, and that brought him into partnership with Bert Akers. Now, Bert Akers and Paul famously fell out after about three months of collaboration. And that is, I think, tended to loom too large in the story. The fact is that during those three months, they worked together and produced the very first films ever seen in Britain. And here we visualized um, what it would have been like that first night when they developed their first film. We don't have the film, we have just a few frames from it shot in Barnet. We assume, and I think this is quite important in terms of stories of origin, that probably Paul and Akers were together at about midnight when they developed the film, laced it up on the kinetoscope and saw that it, it ran. They made a lot of noise. The police came in <laughs> to see what was the noise in Hatton Garden about three o'clock in the morning. And of course the police were shown, we assume, the res- moving film. Now this is a story which you might know because it's uh, reproduced in the film The Magic Box. Except in The Magic Box, the story is transposed to William Freeze Green. It didn't happen to Freeze Green, it happened to Robert Paul. I think it's interesting because he remembered and others remembered too that it had been a real sense of victory, of excitement, getting the first film that they'd made with their own camera to run. So we've tried to visualise it as it might have happened. So what does this look like? Well, that's a kinetoscope. There are no functioning Uh, examples of a Kinetoscope in Britain, but you can see them in various collections. You can see them in the National Media Museum in Bradford, for instance. This is one of the very first films that they made. Um, And we do have that thanks to the National Fairground Archive in Sheffield, which found the film and has preserved it. It's a very unusual film. see the blue jacket is of course the hero of the hour. It's all action. <laughs> it's really quite unlike the first films of any other nation. Why the first British film, and this is pretty much the first film that was actually shown uh, to a paying public on the Kinetoscope, why should it be um, an affray? <laughs> Does that tell us something about the British national character? Uh, my old friend, uh, Paul Langford, who wrote a wonderful book about the English national character, said that the English always had a reputation for rough and tumble. They were regarded by other nations as being prone to get into a fight. And you might think this film actually uh, reinforces that sense. But it's an extraordinary film because it really is like nothing that Edison, nothing that the Lumiere's, nothing like any of the other pioneers created. Now, Paul moves out into London after this small number of early demonstration films. And um, unfortunately, many of the films that he made, we don't have any longer. We have Arrest of the Pickpocket, which is shot on a kind of makeshift stage, obviously. Uh, We don't have the comic Shoe Black. We don't have the performing Bears. We don't have the skirt dancers, the London street scene. We don't have the first film of the Derby that Akers and Paul made or of the Oxford and Cambridge boat race we just have footpads from that first group Paul moves on to make his own films in 1896 and again most of these films are lost we don't really have all of them but what I've done is to rep- reproduce something like the look of some of these missing films Hampstead Heath on a bank holiday for instance children at play in Lambeth. Um, a royal wedding, always a popular subject in England. This is Princess Maud marrying King Haakon of, of Norway. That was a very popular um, public wedding. And the Nelson Dock, uh, one of the many docks that lined the Thames at this time, working docks, of course. I went to see Nelson Dock actually yesterday um, near Rotherhithe and it, it has changed a bit. <laughs> Not quite like this, but that's something like the bustling scene that people who saw the film describe. It was a very popular film, because what Paul was showing was popular subjects. He was showing films that matched people's expectations of what London would look like, the different facets of London. And, of course, one of the earliest films that we do have from this 1896 group, some of you will have seen online, it's this uh, absolutely extraordinary film of Blackfriars Bridge, Um, which he made in in, uh, spring of 1896 and you see that building at the back there on the left with the spire? That's his old school. That is in fact the City of London School, that building that you saw earlier. It's now the headquarters of J.P. Morgan but I think Paul would have put the camera there to keep his old school in view. But the main thing, of course, is the foreground, this extraordinary gallery of Londoners who are passing by. He also... This is one of the other surviving films from mid-'96. He went to Herne Hill in South London and filmed the musical Sports Day. <coughs> the comic Costume Race. Now, this... Um, The musical accompaniment is by Stephen Horn from the DVD that uh, I've curated. Of course, the film is still pretty good. It's still very funny. It has all the ingredients of a a dressing up in costume uh, race that we expect. It would have meant so much more to the audiences of 1896 because these were popular music hall performers. These were, in fact, the performers that were followed by audiences all around the music halls of London. And when this film was shown in the music halls, of course, there would have been people in the audience saying, Oh, that's such and such a person. They would have recognized them. Obviously, we've lost that. But it shows how important I think the music hall was as the kind of venue that Paul's career took off from. He went to uh, start showing his films in the Alhambra Music Hall in Leicester Square in uh, March 1896 as one item on the playbill of attractions. And he before Many weeks had passed. He was showing in a number of other music halls, probably as many as five music halls. He, he kept a handsome cab waiting on the curb outside and he raced around the music halls putting on a show in each of them. Must have had a projector already set up. Eventually, he trained some projectionists to do the job for him. But the early months, the early weeks of his exhibition career must have been incredibly hectic. The manager of the Alhambra, uh, Alfred Mool a very dynamic figure in the music hall of the end of the 19th century, realised that the kind of programme that Paul was showing could be improved. So he suggested to Paul that maybe there should be something a little more entertaining made to add to the programme. Again, we don't know how this came about, but basically Robert Paul uh, and Mool and three of the dancers from the Alhambra went up onto the roof of the Alhambra overlooking Leicester Square and they shot a film called The Soldiers' Courtship uh, in April 1896. This, I think, is one of the uh, great early films. It's something that we should be really proud of, and it should be much better known. It's not been possible to see it until recently, but the Cineteca Nazionale in Rome made a rather remarkable digital restoration of it uh, back in 2010, taking elements from three different archives, from from Bradford, from... um, Rome itself and from Lisbon. It shows you how widely the bits of the film had been dispersed. They made an extraordinary restoration and I'm very pleased to say that thanks to their help I'm able to show it to you tonight for the first time. This is really the first time this has been seen in Britain since the 1890s. <laughs> um, we don't have accompaniment yet, uh, so you have to take it, uh, you have to imagine the kind of accompaniment that would go with it, but uh, here we go, the soldier's courtship. I think we should have the lights down, don't you? There we are. You have seen it. <laughs> I imagine that when that was shown at the Alhambra, let's just go back and look at the, uh, I think we can, we can stop that. Uh, my thanks are due to Irela Nunez, uh, who very kindly made it available, uh, especially for this occasion. Let's just go back and show you the venue in which it was first seen and made, indeed. So that's the Alhambra, on where the Odeon Leicester Square still stands built on the site of the Alhambra, a rather evocative nighttime image from a picture postcard uh, with the Empire Music Hall on the left of that photograph, um, which is where the Lumiere show was running at the same time. And this is the interior. This is a rather wonderful 1895 or 96 photograph of the interior of the Alhambra. So it's on that screen, as it were, that the soldier's courtship would have been seen and no doubt would have been repeated because it was a a first. No one had seen an acted fictional film like that with that sense of performance before. Uh, No one had made anything like it. If you look at what Thomas Edison was making in that same month of April, 1896, he made a film called The Kiss, but it's a very timid kiss compared with what uh, the two, (laughs) the two dancers from the Alhambra get up to. And they were very famous dancers in their time. The lady who interrupts their lovemaking uh, Emma uh, Ellen Dawes, uh, would in fact become Robert Paul's wife a year later. So, goodness knows what happened during the making of that film. <laughs> um, the musical was important to Paul. It provided him with his first audiences. It stimulated a sense of what an audience was interested in seeing, I think. And it gave him his subject matter, of course, for um, a number of his films, which featured leading musical performers and artists. Um, A very curious film from 1896, and again, we know absolutely nothing about why or how Paul filmed this, is actually a film based on a stage play that was running in London at the time called 2 AM or The Husband's Return. The first historian of British cinema, Rachel Lowe, uh, wrote rather caustically about Robert Paul in 1948 that his films show a certain lack of taste. <laughs> well, I often wondered whether she was thinking of something like this. She wouldn't have seen it because the film I think was not able to be seen at the time she was writing, but she would have read the catalogue description. There is something um, relatively unconstrained about Paul's early films. They show life as it was, as it were. They don't show a kind of, um, uh, you know, cosmeticised version of it. And I think that's what makes them so appealing to us today. We do get a sense of him um, trying to put contemporary life on the screen, life in the West End of London. He made a lot of films around London during this time, which are all lost. Traffic on Tower Bridge, Fountains in Trafalgar Square, Carting Snow Away in the West End, Pelicans at the Zoo, all the kind of traditional subjects of London, the kind of things that visitors would have gone to see. And of course these films were very popular when they were shown outside of London. But the big event of uh, 1897, the second year of film making and film exhibition was Queen Victoria's Diamond Jubilee uh, in June. Um, This was a a major event uh, by any standards. Uh, Queen Victoria, of course, had been on the throne for a very long time indeed. She'd celebrated her golden jubilee with a large banquet for all the crowned heads of Europe, many of whom were her relatives, of course. So her golden jubilee had been an entirely indoor event, really not available for inspection by, by the masses. Joseph Chamberlain had a brilliant idea for the diamond jubilee Let's make it a public spectacle. Nothing like this had been attempted before, except for funerals. So the Jubilee was conceived as a great tour around the center of London with Victoria in a coach, series of of, um, open Landau's interspersed with the prime ministers and the potentates from all the nations of the empire and their local troops dressed in traditional costume. It was an extraordinary spectacle by all accounts. And of course, it happened on a sunny day, fortunately. Film companies from all over the world came to film it. This is one of the first great spectacles available for filming, and Robert Paul was there with the others. Now, we have a lot of different representations of the Diamond Jubilee. We have this rather splendid painting, uh, in colour, of course, uh, as a painting would be. Um, Most of the films, as far as we can tell, were probably in black and white, except Robert Paul's were certainly hand-coloured. And um, I'll show you one fragment, two frames, of one of uh, his um, coloured films from the Jubilee in a a few moments. But let's have a look at something of what the Jubilee looked like first. This is not actually Paul's film, of the Jubilee. This is another set of films, but it's, a, it's a, a good extract to show you a sense of what filming the Jubilee was like. The, um, the Queen was too infirm to climb the steps of St. Paul's, which was the, um, the centre point of the whole procession. So the clergy came down the steps, and they had a a quick service at the bottom of the steps. Um, The choir sang, she got back into the um, coach and uh, the procession continued. Now, what I find interesting is that this image on the right is the official Diamond Jubilee portrait, which was released to mark the occasion. It's a very, um, very composed, very formal, very regal portrait. What you've just seen was the way that most people would have seen the Jubilee in moving in action, as it were, in some of the many, many films that were shot of it. That's Robert Paul. We have very few photographs of him, by the way. That's one of the images of him with the camera that he used to film the Jubilee. And you see that there are two wires coming out of the camera, which suggest strongly to me that the camera was electrically powered which would make sense because he was an electrical engineer, but we have no other record of him using an electrical camera at this precise moment. And those are some frames of uh, a fragment of what the film would have looked like in 1897. It's, It's a fundamental mistake to assume that all early films were seen in black and white. Many of them were seen in color, hand colored or tinted, something like that image you see. In 1898, Paul was making a series of films on the Thames. He'd hired uh, a boat and he was working his way around the Thames, which was very much a working river at this time, of course. So he he shot lots of films of different uh, industrial activities around the river. And the climax of this was probably intended to be the launch of HMS Albion in June 1898. He must have timed his route around the river to be there for this uh, much-anticipated launch. This was a, a pre-dreadnought uh, battle cruiser um, which had been built at Blackwall on, on the Thames and there was great excitement at its launch. It was a, a new generation of British warships and of course Britain's navy was uh, um, the great, one of the great navies of the world, if not the greatest navy of the world at this time. Three other, two other um, companies were there to film the launch of HMS Albion, which was going to have a royal launch. This is an image from one of the other films, uh, Prestwich's film. Bert Akers, Paul's old collaborator, was also there on a distant platform filming this launch, but unfortunately the launch turned into a disaster. The ship went down the slipway, the bow wave, or the tidal wave it created, swept away rickety scaffolding to one side and some hundreds of spectators were swept into the river. Uh, Chaos, disaster. Paul was on the river and was filming. And we have at least part of the film that he made um, on that occasion. I think this is his wife, Ellen. Pretty sure she would, have been, she would have been there for the occasion. This was a great royal occasion. Why shouldn't she come along and see the launch? And the camera sweeps past her see small boats trying to rescue people from from the Thames from the river here we're right in the middle of the rescue operation There was controversy over the showing of this film. Um, Bert Akers wrote a letter to the newspaper saying it was uh, a disgrace that anyone should profit from a disaster like this. Paul wrote back to say that he had, of course, waived any higher fee, any sales uh, from the um, film. And in fact, when it was shown in several music halls, the audience stood bareheaded um, in respect and took it as a memorial to those who'd been lost. He also said that he had managed to rescue over 20 people from the water. So it's an interesting early case of testing the the ethics of filming something which is is in effect a disaster. Should one film it? Should one give people a chance to see what was going on? Some thought you shouldn't. Paul was adamant in defending um, his right to show it and the, the value of it as a kind of memorial. We have a few other films from this period which c- contain London scenes. And this is one which um, seems like a foretaste of what is coming just around the corner um, at the end of the century. This is the reception of the, the Sirdar at Guildhall in uh, 1898. Now the Sirdar was the, the name that was given traditionally to the English uh, head of the Egyptian army. Britain was effectively running Egypt at this time. It was always a British general who was head of the Egyptian army and uh, Kitchener was the the Sirdar. He came home after vindicating the the loss of General Gordon at Khartoum and he was greeted as a conquering hero and given a great reception at Guildhall. We have the film of him uh, being received at Guildhall A lot of pigeons there, you can see. (coughs) What we know from the few accounts there are of the reception of films like this, the film perhaps doesn't look very interesting to us. We can't really see the figures very clearly. It's taken from a distance. But, of course, the audience did know who was appearing on screen. And we understand that there was loud cheering from the audience as people recognised this was... Um, General Kitchener, a man to be to be uh, hailed. So somehow the audience did know what they were seeing on the screen and was pleased to be taking part in an occasion like this. Another film of Paul's made at the same time was of The Tripping of the Colour. We don't have that um, anymore. This is a contemporary painting from 1898 of what The Tripping of the Colour might have looked like. Of course, by 1899, by the end of 1899, Britain was involved in a war, in the South African War, and all of this uh, ritual that we're seeing here would would turn into something very much more serious, and Paul would become very much involved in the war and representing the war on screen. But before that happens, at the end of 1898, he decides that something new is needed in producing films for the screen. His business at this time consists of manufacturing projectors, cameras and films. The whole apparatus that you need to put on a picture show. And he and I'm sure his wife, Ellen, who came out of the music hall, she'd been a, a dancer at the Alhambra. They must have sat down and decided that it was time to do something really quite, quite daring. So they bought two fields in New Southgate which was about to become Muswell Hill in the north of London. That's a a period map which shows it's pretty rural at this time. And in these fields next to what is Sydney Road today, you can see it over here. um, I think there we are. That's Colney Hatch Lane. And there is uh, Sydney Road going off it, I think. About there they built a studio. This is really the first studio built in Britain, one of the first studios to be built in the world. We have one photograph of probably the first stage they built, at the top there, and this is the first of the buildings that they constructed to house the processing of films, the dispatch, the packaging, etc. And in this studio, they would go to work to create... um, a remarkable series of films in the autumn of 1898. And this is the ad that I quoted from at the very beginning. Here's another chance to look at it and to see some more of it. Um, The public have been surfeited with trains, trams and buses. The capacity of animated pictures for producing breathless sensation, laughter and tears has hardly been realized. A staff of artists and photographers have been at work in North London to produce a series of animated photographs, 80 in number, each of which tells a tale, comic, pathetic or dramatic. Such clearness, brilliancy and telling effect that the attention of the beholders should be riveted. I I have a feeling that Paul had a hand in writing this. (laughs) There is something about the um, decisiveness of his, the text of his catalogues. This comes very close to the the way his catalogs narrate the contents of his films. He was the inventor of the illustrated film catalog. And about 1898, he starts producing these really very voluminous catalogs, which give a complete synopsis of each film, usually with one or two photographs from it. And you can hear a, a very confident tone of voice, which I'm pretty sure is Robert Paul's. And this, these are two images from one of these 80 films. Now we we have none of these 80 films that are described here have survived, which is rather sad. Um, But what we do have is Come Along Do. Come Along Do begins with an old couple sitting outside what is described as an art exhibition. And then something very unusual happens. There's a cut and suddenly we're inside the exhibition and the old gentleman is showing an unhealthy interest in a nude statue until his wife comes over and tugs at him and says, come along do. It's an old music hall song. Uh, You can find the words uh, online very easily. David Robinson, a great film historian, has shown me lots of examples of come along do as a stereoscope subject, as a song, as a stage uh, sketch, etc. I'm pretty sure that Ellen Paul would have suggested to Robert that this might make a good subject There is uh, a suggestion that these two characters are played by Robert and Ellen. We don't know whether this is true, but it is suggested. Certainly, the the woman looks rather like Ellen, who we've seen in The Soldier's Courtship. If they did play the parts themselves, what they're doing is acting in the world's first two-shot film. As far as we know, this is the very first time that anyone thought of joining two shots together, an interior, and exterior, and an interior to tell a story. Some of the other films made at this time, our new general servant has got four scenes. So Paul and I'm pretty sure Ellen, were experimenting with the possibility of films that tell a story. Unfortunately, this is all we have to to go on, see the results. But it's it's an impressive move, I think, into a new world of what is recognizably cinema Films followed, of course, in rapid succession. The studio was a a wonderful venue for making the range of films that Paul envisaged at the end of of, of 98 in that ad. These are just stills from several of them. You can can see them online. You can actually see, I'll be showing a number of these films on Wednesday afternoon at at Birkbeck College when we're looking at the output of the studio, uh, if anyone's free to come along. What's, I think, interesting from a London point of view is that Paul has moved to the suburbs. Muswell Hill is rapidly being built up as a suburb, a new residential suburb, no pubs. It's a very proper um, suburb. And the streets that we see in these films from 1899 onwards are suburban streets. In many cases, they're streets that haven't been made up yet. That's Colney Hatch Lane, which is one of the big roads that leads to the north today. But as you can see, it's pretty sparsely um, uh, edged with houses at this time. The roads aren't surfaced in the way that we're used to them. So filmmaking in Britain moves into the suburbs, as it did in France and in Denmark and in many other parts of the world. Filmmaking becomes essentially a suburban activity, with studios being established outside the city centre. But Paul has retained his interest in London as a subject, and in 1901 he published um, a little booklet called What to Photograph in London. This is the ad for it. Um, It shows where you can go if you've got a camera, and of course this is the era, remember, when people are beginning to equip themselves with brownie box cameras. So Paul, who is very attentive to new trends, realises that there's an army of people descending in London who want to go and make photographs for themselves, so he provides uh, a practical guide where to go, what hours it's open, whether you need a permit or not in this little booklet. Unfortunately, I've been unable to find any copy of this booklet, so if anybody here or who's viewing this online has ever seen a little booklet called What to Photograph in London, please get in touch with me. It seems incredible that something which was published in two editions should have completely disappeared but it has. But we assume it was popular because it was reprinted. I take this text from a a rather wonderful website, my friend Roland Francois Lac, uh, a film historian, who has done uh, a lot of work on Paul's location in Muswell Hill, and you'll find his website The Cine Tourist, a mine of information about Paul as a local filmmaker. Now, that's where I'm going to really pause in looking at Paul's career as a filmmaker, because once he's in the studio, he's making a tremendous range of films story films, comedies, dramas, special effects films, which are called trick films. And I'm going to be showing a number of those, as I say, on Wednesday. But I just wanted to pause for a moment near the end and reflect on what these films meant. Their first audiences and what they might mean to us today. This is a difficult subject because we have no accounts from the period, from the 1890s. Nobody really sat down after watching a program of films and said, I have just seen blah, 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 this is what I thought of it. Unfortunately, there's almost no writing of that kind whatsoever. Or if it is, it's purely technical. How steady was the picture? How are we to get inside the consciousness of those first viewers? Why did they keep coming back? Why did they find early films so short, so apparently limited, so interesting? I have found two two sources uh, helpful in trying to understand, if you like, the, the Edwardian attitude late Victorian Edwardian attitude to moving pictures. One is a great story by Rudyard Kipling called Mrs Bathurst, uh, published in 1904. It's a story about a man who becomes obsessed with a moving image, a film. Uh, He sees a film of a woman at um, a station in London and he drags someone back to see it night after night after night, and he forms a relationship with the woman he sees in the station in London, even though he's seeing it in South Africa. It's a story about getting obsessed by a moving picture. It's a very strange, mysterious story. If you don't know it, it's well worth reading, and it's quite puzzling. Kipling had clearly seen moving pictures. He might well have seen them on a ship travelling out to South Africa. Films were shown... um, on board ship. And I think it's one of the greatest stories that conveys a sense of the fascination that at least one early viewer might have had with early moving pictures. It's an obsessive fascination. Obviously, most of the audience wasn't obsessed in the way that the central character of Mrs. Bathurst is. But um, that's one way of getting in touch with the zeitgeist, as it were, of viewing at the end of the 1890s, beginning of the 1900s. Another way is... um, an essay by a French writer, Jules Romain. Jules Romain wrote a remarkable, very short essay in 1911 called The Crowd at the Cinema. And um, this is a little quote from it. He talks about it as a group dream. The audience pours in off the streets, they sit down in the darkness, and they go into a kind of collective dream state. They're no longer conscious of their bodies. They're only passing images. gliding rustling of dreams they no longer realize they're in a large square chamber a haze of visions which resemble life hovers before them it's a very evocative piece of writing I think and it it captures something of what it must have been like to watch a film program in the early 1900s you leave the bustle of the street um, you go into a darkened room darkened rooms were not very common at that time the lights were generally kept on in the theatre but not in theatres showing moving pictures and again I think this gives us some slight sense of what at least one observer Jules Romain might have made of that experience of collective film watching which of course had become immensely popular by the time he was writing in 1911 but it's difficult to think our way back into um, that period these are just two suggestions I offer Um, there are others but uh, I think it's important to try to imagine what the audience of the turn of the century was and why they became so fascinated by film. So, as I've said, um, if you're interested in seeing more about what Robert Paul gets up to, including his trick films, like this film about a a seance called Upside Down or The Human Flies, a rather wonderful trick film, one of the early films made in the studio, we're going to have a program of these uh, at the Birkbeck cinema on Wednesday afternoon and Roland Francois Lac, who I mentioned earlier is going to come along and join me and talk about uh, his work on what the Muswell Hill studio was like and how the films <laughs> spill out of the studio into the streets of Muswell Hill uh, at the turn of the century and um, You've seen a few panels from the graphic novel that uh, Ilya and I have been working on. This is the cover of the novel. Uh, This will appear in in, uh, April, and it will accompany an exhibition about Robert Paul and his work at Bruce Castle uh, Harringay's local history center, which will also open at the beginning of April. And I'm hoping this will provide a, a popular introduction, an accessible introduction to understanding something about the origins of of early cinema in Britain. There's a much bigger book on Robert Paul coming later in the year from the University of Chicago Press, but uh, we haven't got there quite yet. (laughs) So, um, that is another online source of information about Paul and this world of early filmmaking. It's a blog which I started uh, over a year ago and you'll find it at that address online. I'm just offering these in case you want to pursue any of these subjects in your own time. Obviously, there's not much one can cover in a a short lecture like this. But um, if anyone's got any questions, we do have a little bit of time. (laughs) So I'd be very happy to to, um, uh, answer any questions that I can.